The Pellicle Podcast is supported by our Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to support our website, podcast and magazine, please visit patreon.com forward slash pellicalemag. Hello, I'm Matthew Curtis, and welcome to the Pellicle Podcast. Pellicle is a magazine devoted to exploring the worlds of beer, wine, cider, food and travel, and the joy we find within these cultures. In our show, we like to dig into the stories of the people, products and places that make the food and drink we love so vital. Our aim is to bring you folks closer to these cultures through our shared enthusiasm, all while hopefully bringing these worlds closer together in the process. Today's show is part of a series of panel talks recorded at 2019's Fine Fest, the annual festival held by Fine Ales at the home of their brewery and family farm in Cairndow, Scotland. Fine Ales have been huge friends and supporters of Pellicle since day one, and it was a privilege to be invited to host these talks. We were gutted not to be able to return to the Glen in 2020 due to the pandemic, but are already relishing returning in 2021 with gusto. In recent months, I've become fascinated by the idea of legacy in modern beer, and what kind of impact today's brewers will have on the next generation of beer lovers. We're incredibly fortunate for the existence of beers like Timothy Taylor's Landlord, Harvey's Best, St Austell Tribute, and Fine Ale's very own Jarl. Beers with a seemingly timeless quality that will hopefully continue to be enjoyed for decades to come. But what's next? They say it takes at least 10 years to build a brand, and with many modern breweries focusing instead on limited releases and one-off beers, what are they building in terms of brand and identity? In this discussion, we try to get to the bottom of this. I'm joined on this panel by three people who are highly invested in their brands. Tina Breslin, the illustrator behind the compelling cans from Manchester's Wonder Beyond. Andrew Matthews of Vibrant Forest Brewery, known for its equally vibrant artwork. And the lovely Ian Smith, marketing manager at Fine Ales, who was the person kind enough to let us folks at Pellicle host these talks. It's a fascinating chat, especially if you're interested in branding and design, as well as the beer itself. And apologies for a little background noise. This was recorded at a festival heading well into the livelier portion of its afternoon. Now it's time to sit back, relax and enjoy the show. You're listening to The Pellicle Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the penultimate instalment in our series of panel talks uh, we're hosting at uh, Finefest today. Um, my name is Matt Curtis, I'm the, the co-founder and editor of a new magazine called Pellicle that uh, talks a lot about beer and also lots of other delicious things like natural wine and low intervention cider um, and we launched on the 1st of May um, and uh, a few months ago I asked uh, Ian here if uh, he would let us host the panel talks and, and uh, he and uh, Jamie from Fine Ales kindly said yes, so here we are uh, hosting them this year, and it's been an absolute blast. Uh, This talk is called Crafting a Legacy, and I've actually been writing about legacy 
in a lot of my, uh, the articles I write uh, at the moment because it's a concept I'm fascinated with. And when I'm talking about legacy, I'm talking about um, legacy brands. So if you think about something like Duval or Augustina or Pilsner or Aquell or, or Landlord, they have a history and a story and they're not just a great beer, it's something that has been built up over years. And so what I have now is, is a mixture of uh, some young and, uh, what would I say, sort of a middle-aged? Yeah. Is that fair to say Finals yeah. is middle-aged? Yeah, 18s, yeah. 18s, you know. 18. That's old in brewery terms. But, but also, <laughs> also a brewery that's just rebranded, uh, completely different to how everything looked last year. Um, and we're going to talk today about uh, what it's like to build a brand from a perspective of an older brewery and, and some uh, younger breweries that we have. Uh, people who do marketing and, and a designer uh, who, who does some incredible design for Wonder Beyond Brewing. So just to introduce everyone at the forum, we've got Tina Breslin from Wonder Beyond in Manchester. Uh, we've got Andrew Matthews from Vibrant Forest uh, in, down in the New Forest. And we've got Finel's very own marketing manager, Ian Smith, uh, who's taking a break from running around, uh, mostly setting up the, uh, the Sky TV for the, uh, the Champions League final at 8pm. That's... <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if Tottenham won, though? Yes. I'm not a fan of either team, but wouldn't it be great? Um, I'm in trouble now, aren't I? <clears throat> so, yeah, we're going to talk about branding, and it's going to be, going to be great, and then we're going to watch some football. Um, but not before we have a talk about Sours at five, our last talk today. Um, so, Ian, Fine Ales just went through a huge rebrand, something you were heavily involved with, and you can see it here. Uh, and I just want to talk about what, what the greatest challenges were when you, you already had in my mind what was a very classic, well-loved brand. So what were the biggest challenges you went through when you were working on this, this new brand? Uh, yeah, so just for kind of a bit of context first, I'm, my, my first year at Finales was entirely based doing market research about kind of uh, how we're perceived as a brewery, how our products perceive and stuff, perceived and stuff. And what we found was that like, where we thought of ourselves and where we wanted to go didn't line up what people thought of us where we were and, and how we look and how we feel as a brand. And that was the, the thing that we wanted to do was to give ourselves a new identity uh, visually that would kind of help push us on forward uh, and, and set us up for hopefully the next kind of 10, 15 years of the brewery. Uh, although I don't think any branding lasts that long maybe um, the the big challenge for me was kind of um, like we, we, we when we started the project we kind of said to ourselves it was myself and Jamie kind of leading on the project and uh, we said we need to be brave like we need to make bold choices we can't we can't shy away from this we we, we have a brand but it, we, we've identified we've done a year's worth of research and it's not working um, in terms of our growth and targets and things so you know we need to be bold and we need to be brave and and it is a big departure we're, we're, we're very aware of that but luckily people have taken to it um, and we wanted something that wasn't uh, super sharp and and new and didn't look uh, you know like on on vogue in the in the in the craft beer scene. You know we weren't trying to em, uh, replicate anyone else's style or anything. We were just trying to look something that was very much authentically us. Um, and that's where the farm brewery came in because it came through time and time again. It's like what's the, what's one of the most important things about our brewery is our location, being here and and you guys have probably seen and felt it. You know this is an amazing place. This is a special place where you know um, the Delat family who founded the brewery they've been here living here for generations and and we really want to bring that to the forefront and and make that part of our branding. And that's that's kind of. Figuring out a way to represent that visually, but also something that's appealing, you know, got that shelf appeal, that, that, was, that was probably the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. And what's, if you've had any customers, maybe, maybe pubs would be a great example with you, say with Jarl, such a great selling beer for you. Have you had any customers who've resisted the change? Have you gone, uh, here's our new pump clips, and they said, no, we like the old ones. How have you overcome that kind of challenge? 
Um, we've been fairly lucky. Most people have taken to it quite quickly. Um, and I think once people get over the, the initial kind of how different it is, it's, it's been uh, fairly well received uh, overall, I'd say. Um, pubs who haven't wanted to change, we, we haven't forced them. It's not like we've gone in and stolen their pump clips and fled through the doors. That'd be ridiculous. Um, although there's been a couple where I've wanted to try. Um, <laughs> but, you know, our customers are, uh, the most important thing is that they keep um, buying our beer and, and, and pouring our beer well and taking care of it in terms of cellaring and things. And if they're a good customer, then we're, yeah, we're not going to force it upon them. Um, a lot of them who were initially kind of hesitant have come around, but I say a lot as if there was a lot. There wasn't. It was it was quite easy for us to get over. Um, and I still know there's a couple of pubs who are, who haven't changed, but you know, as long as they keep taking care of the beer and, and uh, their customers are happy and they're still it's still selling for them, mm -hmm. we're happy with that. And at some point they'll decide to make the change, and, and you know we'll, we'll support them with that as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting though because obviously with with the rebrand comes. Um, the, the point of sale materials, so your bar runners, your glassware, your, your beer mats and that. So they've got all that stuff with the new branding on it because we, we you know, that stuff is uh, disposable basically. Glasses get stolen, smashed, etc. So they've got all the new branding in that front, but you know, they've still got an emotional attachment to what was our original branding. So um, th they'll get there, I'm sure they will. Mm -hmm. And what was the thought process behind the new branding? Because it is a big departure. So what, what was the, what inspirations were you taking? What was the aim? Yeah, um, kind of as I said, you know, it's something that we was authentically us. Um, you know, we, we were very keen to keep the colorways of our core products, and, and Yarl are still Yarl colors, etc. But we wanted to do something that's much more uh, representative of kind of rustic, rural um, kind of origin of the brewery. You know, it's where it comes from. You know, like there, as as Jamie said in his panel yesterday, like there is a lot of breweries in, in uh, industrial estates and, and railway arches and things. And, and no offence to them, but we have something special here, and we wanted that to come across. So the the branding features textures of, of using macro photography taken from around the farm, and that's what gives us our patterns for our labels or handmade ones using items found on the farm. So when we were doing um, some kind of test work with the, the agency we worked with. We, we went out and we got, you know, we found bits of wood and pine cones and things and made ink prints and rubbings with them and used those as the textures and stuff. So it's all very much kind of grounded in where we are here. Um, and then obviously wanted something that also looked quite modern and presentable for, so it could, could sit quite comfortably on the shelves of a, of a craft beer shop. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Andrew, you've, um, how old is Vibrant Forest now? You're quite a young brewery, aren't you? Uh, yeah, so we started in 2013. So 2013. So, so in craft beer terms, that's quite, you know, that's a good, uh, uh, you know, five, six years ago. So yep. that's, that's a long time in, in, in modern beer terms. But you've, you've worked on rebranding uh, uh, that and from quite a young, you already had what I thought was quite a recognisable brand, but now your brand is very modern, very, very, like, it's vibrant, you know, as... as uh, as the name of the we brewery. We it, then we did very well. Yeah. So what was the, the thought process behind moving to your uh, new brand, and what were you trying to achieve with it? Um, so I say we're, we're a little bit we're an older brewery. Um, we're very well established in uh, south of England, so sort of Dorset, Hampshire, mm -hmm. uh, Berkshire, uh, those, those sort of counties. Uh, but we really wanted to push further afield, uh, and we just felt that, that growth was perhaps being held back by our old branding, which wasn't perhaps traditional, um, but it was very, very uniform, uh, sort of just changes in colours between the same sort of template. Um, and, and we just felt that a bit of an uplift would help us push beyond that. Um, and we had just started canning at that point as well, so we'd been purely bottled before, and we'd mm -hmm. sort of put our, tested the waters of canning. Uh, and, and they'd done fairly well, but just, we just weren't getting that sort of feedback. Mm -hmm. um, so we, yeah, we decided that we were going to rebrand, and at that time, a chap called Will Parr actually contacted us out of the blue. He just moved into the area, um, and he thought that he could work with us. Um, so we went with that, uh, and it went very well. Uh, so we held a, a Europe-wide um, sort of relaunch event called Genetic Drift, 
that was not at all stressful to organise. <laughs> um, that was last uh, August. Uh, How did that go? Very well, mostly. Yeah, 98% happy, I think. Um, so we had, uh, what was it, like uh, 40 venues across the UK and then 10 or 15 with our sort of European import partners. Uh, so sort of France, Italy, a bit of Scandinavia. Uh, and we rebranded and relaunched with uh, six beers, so I think four core beers and a couple of specials. And we just threw it out the door, and then it just sort of happened. A couple of bars put it on the day before, and I was like, ah, that's fine, it's done. Um, I think it was a Friday, and I was like, I'm going home. Uh, <laughs> I threw my phone into the woods. Um, but no, it was really good. And we've, uh, we've since grown with that, and we've developed quite a new, uh, quite a range of sort of cans and new beers, and it just keeps evolving. Uh, we've got a few sort of core series that we sort of alter and change, uh, and put those out, um, and they're very well received. But then again, the new beers are, yeah. Fantastic. And how has that been received by, by the general public? Have you seen an upturn in, in, in sales or growth because of your rebrand? What kind of thing have you seen? Yeah, massively. Um, again, all, all positive. I think we had one sort of uh, older uh, customer who, who didn't like it, but then they said, I'm still going to come and drink it. Um, which was nice. Uh, but yes, yeah, so it's Kansas. We special. are going to have a brass band go past, by the way, but they're, 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 we're, we're going to take a short pause. <laughs> Um, Carry on, but we will pause when the band go past. Or oh, maybe even now. <laughs> it's, they're going to go past after 20 minutes of tuning up, maybe. <laughs> where were we? Oh, that's, that's blown my mind. Yeah, uh, the, the new brand, which was lovely, as is that music. Um, so, yeah, the cans especially have been going out all over. Uh, so we use Ebria quite a lot, and, yeah. and that just turns up in the most random of places. You, know, you, yeah. get, you get an email come through, and uh, so one of the brew dogs in Aberdeen took some of our sours recently, and then that was all over social media. That's quite bizarre, really, but that's very good. Great. Tina, you do some wonderful design work for Wonder Beyond. So what's your thought process in coming up with that very distinctive style? How did you come up with your hop characters uh, for, the, for the cans at Wonder Beyond? Um, I remember the first ones were like barrel characters as well, weren't they? Yeah, so I tried to create um, a little sort of beery world that, uh, where the illustrations reflect the beer, so we do quite unusual, um, exciting beers with loads of fruit and stuff. And um, the designs I create, I try and replicate that sort of fun, experimental sort of world that we're, we're making. Um, I'm also a little bit nerdy with some of the, the characters as well. So the hop characters are all different from each other. So again, it reflects a beer. If the beer's got citra in it, the citra hop looks a bit different to an equinox hop. Mm -hmm. So you could actually look at my design and go, oh, it's got citra and Simcoe. Ah, if yes. you uh, yeah, I've never noticed you. that, but now I'll see it every quite, time. It's yeah. very clever, yeah. Yeah, a little bit nerdy with it. Um, and again, I think that reflects how we are about our, our beer. A bit experimental, a bit fun, a bit nerdy. Um, yeah, it's also quite inspired by um, my love and the team's love for the outdoors. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, me and Dan do a lot of climbing outside, uh, which takes us to some really cool locations. And um, our lead brewer, Matt, he does a lot of long-distance cycling. Mm -hmm. So again, there's lots of cycling sort of landscapes and sort of adventure. Yeah, there's almost like a double layer to your design because the, the, you've got these very sort of cartoon-like hop characters doing things on the can, but then the background is, is, is more of a sort of landscape and like yeah. you take them to all these different worlds. So what are you trying to say to the customer with, with, each, with each design? Um, is, is there a thought process where you go, this, this beer is a big sort of lactose imperial stout. Yeah. What, what would, how would you approach a label for that kind of beer? 
it's sort of what I feel from the beer. So, like, if, um, if I taste a big lactose stout and I, I sort of get an instant image of what, what that makes me think of. So, it might make me think of camping under the stars and you see, like, a beautiful Milky Way thing and I sort of get that image from when, when I taste a bit. So, it's, I am really inspired by what, by what we make. And again, if, if we've decided to put a load of blueberries in something, um, so we've got one we've just released called a Nura, um, which is a type of frog. And I, it was huge blueberry for me, and I just had this crazy image of a, a giant like blueberry frog, like sort of like sort of weird, but it's just what came to my head, and I was like, yeah, that's perfect. It's it's a bit wacky, but it shows that it's a, a huge blueberry beer, but it's still a little little mental. But, mm. Yeah. So I want to talk a bit more about legacy, not just like branding, but brand building. And it's a very interesting quote. Uh, you know, I was speaking to uh, Richard Burhouse of Magic Rock after their sale to Lion, and how he, the, what excited him about brewing wasn't the, the sort of weekly can releases. It was more, you know, having high wire cannonball inhaler, and then having something that would be, you know, appreciated in, in ten years' time. And uh, and you can't do that with limited release beers it, it builds hype but it, it, it can you build legacy with that we'll, we'll find out in the next five to ten years but also if you look at back at some of the strongest brands I made a list like going through from older to younger so there's Duval and um, Pilsner Aquel actually Pilsner Aquel have an amazing brand that's, that's it uses this wonderful typography but in their archives they've actually rebranded hundreds of times and they've got a archive books with every brand and, th and then what they do when they rebrand is they actually go back to some of the old ones because they come back in fashion again and they keep working through it cyclically. Um, whereas someone like Duval has basically looked the same for like 70 years. And then you've got modern, like I wrote, uh, it's an tribute we were talking about earlier which is um, 20 years old and that's gone from being like a summer seasonal to the, the beer that built a brewery. And now if you try to change tribute, there'll probably be a bit of resistance to it. And then a really modern example is Punk IPA because it's, you know, that beer is... Um, is over 10 years old, old now, and that's, that went through a rebrand. But it's, it's kind of, a, it's more than just a, a beer in the supermarket. It's, it's people drink punk because it's, it's punk. It, it, it has legacy now. Um, what you make of that legacy is up to you, of course. Um, but Ian, how do you hope to build a legacy like that with Fine Ales? Because I see it with Yarl, but Fine Ales is about a lot, you know, we talk about Yarl, we love Yarl, but Fine Ales is about more than just one beer. So how do you, you know, you talked about maybe having to rebrand in another 10 or 15 years but how do you build that legacy here uh, yeah Jarl is is, is is a great example of how a legacy can build because we we've always kind of uh, considered that Jarl is Should I stop? we might we might pause while the drummer goes past <laughs> sorry it gives me more time to think <laughs> there is a band going past I think we're going to be okay. They're heading to the, towards the festival. That was their live commentary of the brass band <laughs> with me, Alan Partridge. <laughs> Ian. Yes. So, yeah, crafting a legacy. Um, yeah, Jarl is, is our bread and butter. It's, it's about it's between 45 and 50% of our production. Um, and it, and it already has a legacy, but part of the rebound thinking was... Um, Jarl is not a classic beer. It's not a tribute. It's not a landlord. It's it's a it is is a fairly modern beer by those standards. It's not a 26 gram per litre dry hop, no uh, monster IPA, but it is a, a fairly modern beer on that scale. Um, and and we felt like it didn't look like that visually. So we were hoping that rebranding now would give us 
room for it to grow as something a better representation of what it is. It's not an old, an older style beer. It's a more modern style beer. So we're, that's where we're trying to kind of shift Yar's legacy to because it is well appreciated amongst beer drinkers, you know, and, and people here, the other brewers, we get incredible kind of excitement about Yar, which is easy for us to forget how. Oh, it sounds horrible, but how good it is. Uh, because for us, it's just Yarl. It's the thing that we brew four times a week. It's, uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's an everyday occurrence. But, you know, for some people, a good pint of well-kept Yarl on cask, sparkled or unsparkled, is, uh, is, is a great thing. Sparkled. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's them's fighting words in these parts. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, that was part of the rebrand, was kind of like, let's give, if we're going to have Yarl and keep growing that legacy of a beer that's been around for 10 years and, and kick it on for another 10, 15 years, let's give it something that represents what it is as a beer. Andrew, what do you aim to achieve uh, as, with your brewery and your branding? When you, when you come up with a concept like you have now, would, are you thinking about what that's going to look like in 10 years' time, or is it very much about being in the now? I wish we could say that we had a plan and that we were thinking beyond the end of this sentence even. Um, but I feel that uh, often it's quite uh, sort of knee-jerky with us and, and we sort of go with, with how it feels at the time, which is probably a terrible thing to do. Um, but yeah, we just um, sort of just roll with it. Um, in fact, actually, a few days ago, we all had quite a big, uh, well, it was, it was an argument, really, uh, in, in the office. So there's, there's five of us, there's two brewers, there's me and John in the, in, in the office, and then there's Kev, who owns it, um, and talking about actually where we want some of our cool beers to go. So in, in the last sort of six, six, nine months, we've been using a lot of, uh, sort of juicy yeast strains, sort of New England stuff, London Fog, uh, and we've really enjoyed what that's done to some of our hot forward beers, uh, and we have used those. Um, with some of our older recipes, so we've got an IPA kaleidoscope and a session IPA Summerlands, which were probably our, our big core beers. And we've used those yeasts with, with those beers. And they're, they're very, very good, but they perhaps don't taste as we know those beers to be. And so the argument really was, do we, do we keep doing this? Because both beers are, are very, very good, we feel, but maybe we should split so that people who like Summerlands as a sort of a drier, crispier session IPA, more citrus, rather than it being this sort of gloopy hazy thing that we have now um, but they're both good but it's what do we want to do um, going to get conceptual here if that beer in 10 years time becomes a yarl say for example Summerlands became a, your yarl how yeah. do you think you would ensure to, to preserve some sort of legacy for that I think we would need to decide that we wanted to do that uh, and then just then just stick with our guns because we are very knee-jerky. I think we should just engrave it on the wall with a stern sort of picture of myself looking at the office. And we, <laughs> we decided in a barn in Scotland that Summerlands was going to remain this. Uh, I, yeah, we, we don't have as much discipline as perhaps we should do. Um, I'm painting a really lackadaisical picture of our brewery, but it seems to work so far. Uh, I, think that, I think that picture is one that's very familiar in young breweries. I'm sure that's like how you feel as well. Uh, Tina, like, have you have you ever thought about how your brand might be perceived in five or ten years, or, or when you design it, do you think is this something that's going to going to last a long time? Um, so again, quite similar. We don't we're not necessarily thinking about where we're going to be in ten, fifteen years time. It is quite. This is what we want to brew now. Um, this is a progression from the last beer. We keep experimenting and keep pushing these beers, mm -hmm. but I don't think really anyone can actually predict where beer is going to be in 10 years, so we're going to have to change either way. Where do you hope it's going to be? Where do you hope Wonder Beyond <laughs> will be within that? Um, don't know, like a good, a good medium size, maybe a little bigger than we are, but still doing the same or very similar branding. Uh, again, branding that reflects the experimentation and stuff in our beers. Mm -hmm. 
um, still trying to have fun with it, still trying new stuff. Somebody says, why don't, why don't you try brewing this and we'll give it a go if we think that's good and we'll keep evolving as, as our consumers evolve as well. I think. Ian, how, how important is the brand when compared to the beer itself? And I'm going to like maybe open this up to all three of you because um, you know you can't have if you have really good beer, you need good brand to sell it. And if you have a good brand and the beer is terrible, then people will soon find you out. So how how important is finding that balance, and how do you achieve that at Fine Ales? Uh, it's it's really important. Um, it's interesting. We don't have that kind of uh, same degree of flexibility as some younger brewers have, and that, that makes things a little bit difficult for us. But we do have a very involved specials program. Um, we, we kind of know that we're going to brew uh, X amount of IPA or X amount of uh, fun beer. You know, we've done a Raspberry Ripple ice cream pale for, for uh, May because we wanted to, and it was fun. It's something we wanted to drink. So, uh, you know, it's... It, it's a little bit difficult. Can I go back to the question? Because I've lost my train of thought. I got distracted yeah, by. it's all right. Ice, I got distracted by ice cream it, beer. It's all uh, right. <laughs> what was the ice cream beer you brewed? Uh, it's called Pink Rabbits, um, and it was just like we wanted to do something low ABV, fruity, and it was one of our brewers was just like I fancy doing something like that, and we were like, yeah, we just brew it on a small kit and. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll try it, and if it's good, we'll sell it, and if it's not, we probably won't. Uh, <laughs> so the question was, how important is, is brand when compared to the beer itself? Oh, they're, they're, you have to find that balance between the two. You won't last long. As you said, you'll get found out. If, if the beer's not good, if, if, you're, yeah, if you're all show and, and you've not got the substance behind it, you will absolutely get found out quickly. Um, and that's, yeah, again, if you're looking to try and build a legacy and, and um, you know, grow a business, which I think is what most breweries want to do, is, is grow the business and, and get more beer out to people, then you need to have the quality behind it. Um, and we're lucky that, um, you know, we've, we've been around for 18 years now and we do have quality behind us. So when we do do things like stupid one-off cask experiments of Raspberry Ripple ice cream pale ales, people are keen to try it because they know that, like, generally our beers are pretty good. And if it's coming out and we've said it's good enough to go out, it'll be good enough for them. And Andrew, you talked about how you, you've grown since you rebrand. So how important is finding that balance between brand and, and the quality of the beer to you? And what kind of feedback do you get from, from your customers? Uh, as Ian said, you need to hit that balance. Um, separate to us, uh, I was uh, watching a conversation on one of the forums. Um, they were discussing quite a high-profile beer. Um, it was a Scandinavian beer that had had a bad batch years, years and years ago. Mm -hmm. And I found it strange that people were still talking about that quite specific thing. So the brand is, is huge, but I think people remember if they've had a bad experience with it and perhaps they wouldn't have gone back to that. Or So I think yeah, you have to nail the consistency mm -hmm. before you start to play around, um, which I think, again, makes my, my previous point about we need to decide what we want these beers to be. If, if we're going to decide that, we need, to, we need to stick with that and maintain that consistency. And how about you, Tina? What, what do you think your branding says about your beer? What, when, when a customer sees that on a shelf, what do you think you're conveying? And, and, and how important is that image compa with, compared to, to what's actually inside the can or cask? Sparkled. Um, <laughs> um, I think that our branding reflects our beers, like I've said. So the artwork is quite fun, experimental. And I think our beers as well are fun, experimental. So... I would hope that they'd sort of reflect reflect each other. And I think consistency is something interesting because we don't do we don't really do any core beers. So each beer is a progression from the last beer. We mm. might have changed the fruit or the ABV or something, but we keep progressing with them. Um, but because we don't have that consistency of a core range, we need to be consistent in other ways. So we need to be consistent in quality or even consistent in being experimental, so people expect something from you, 
and you need to keep trying to give them that, I think. So that's sort of our way around not doing core beers, mm -hmm. is being consistent in, a, in another way for them. So would you say something, even like peak, your, your sort of cast pale, does that change from, from iteration to iteration? Yeah, so again, the hops in that change, um, that's probably one of our only ones that is core. I think that's the only one we, we do a, a, a few times, but we, we only smell, uh, sell that in small batches. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd say pretty much all the other ones mm -hmm. are different every time. And one last question before I, uh, I mean, which, which I have for all three of you, before I open it up for any questions you might have in the audience, is what, what are your favourite brands? It could be beer, it could be something else, but what, uh, starting with you, Ian, what's inspiring you in terms, in terms of brand? Or is there any brands that have built a huge legacy that you would love to, to follow their footsteps? You've really put me on the spot there. Uh, <laughs> oh, off the top of my head, that's very difficult. Um, Come back to me if that's okay. Andrew, <laughs> what inspires <laughs> the what inspires vibrant forest from branding perspective? Um, so, for, for my own opinion, I actually really like what you do, um, and we don't see enough of it down there. So, yeah, south. Um, so, I really like that sort of just, just the mad landscapes and, and all sorts of things, which, which I've tried to do with a few of our recent double IPAs. So, we've got some really sort of broad things, um, but from the sort of more consistent range, I think Siren uh, for me. Especially their uh, their cast clips, I think they're great. Um, when I walk into pub and I see that, especially if it's Liquid Mistress, I know that that's all that's going to be happening to me on that particular <laughs> evening. Um, it's a wonderful beer. I hope they never <laughs> stop making it. If anyone from Sirens listening, I'll hunt you down if you cancel that beer. Um, yeah, I think that those would be my two choices from either end of the spectrum. I think. Yeah. How about you, Tina? Um, I like brands that have uh, quite a unique identity. So I like it if a beer or, or whatever it is stands out and it has that that style and it's different to everyone else it's not just sort of um, another version of another brand it's definitely them so for me like left-handed giant um, their illustrations are so again quite wacky and very them you can tell it's them and they have it's an no in-house designer like yourself so you know that's that gives that you you know Nick Dwyer at Beavertown another great example Same, of someone yeah. that, that has given a, a sense of identity through having rather than like using an agency or, or, or there's a very internal focus on branding yeah and it's very them it's their like you say Beavertown again I love their stuff like it's got so much personality and you couldn't mimic it if you wanted to you couldn't draw like that if you if you tried you can tell it's Beavertown from looking at it and it's not trying to be anyone else it's who they are and, and you know that from looking at it and then it helps if you have the beer it's really good and again you go back to that beer because you you recognize the brand you know you like that beer it's like a, a little circle really how about you, Ian? What have you thought about? Um, I was trying to think about like how to answer that. Um, it's a tricky one for me because like my personal preferences maybe don't align with the the rebrand I've just done. Like I do like our branding, but like my kind of my go-to kind of design is more like our origins range, which is mm -hmm. quite minimalistic and quite simple and quite clean. And you look at things like Main Beer Co. or um, the Jester King Spawn series that have just very ultra minimal yeah. labels, and that's very much kind of like very appealing to me uh, as as a, as someone who dabbles a little bit in design um, and that's where kind of a lot of the inspiration for our origins beers came from was, was to have something very very simple very clean that was uh but you know still has an impactful shelf yeah. presence to it minimalism is, is something that's really great for me there's uh, i would talk, want to talk through a few of my favorite beer brands there's a couple in london i love pressure drop uh, i love the way they interpret um artists so bosco is like a rothko style painting and the the um pale fire is inspired by m one of my favorite artists david hockney and it's amazing how they 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 turn that into a beer label 
then they went from bottles to cans. Suddenly, it's like this amazing canvas. This canvas. Have you find you're all canning now? What's what's it like working with that media? Has that opened things up uh, for in terms of branding? Like you've just gone into canning. Yeah, our cans are. We've only got one special in can, mm -hmm. um, but the other two are core cans. We've only got three cans so far, so it's not. We've not had that kind of freedom. It's Workbench and Easy Trailer kind of flagship beers. They're, they're core year-round beers, so like they very much kind of part of our template. And uh, with Beer Life Balance, is the collaborative with Beer Biotech, we had a little bit more freedom because it was a special. But uh, as we move to doing kind of labelled cans, I'm looking forward to kind of getting my hands on doing something a bit more experimental. As a designer, Tina, is, what's it like working with cans as a media? Has it made things a lot more e easier or more exciting for you? More exciting. I love doing can design. So we we currently can about once a month. So we don't can every beer, but when we when we do can, I get really excited because it's a bigger again a bigger canvas, a bigger space for me to do this crazy little story on. I can can go a bit wild with it and there's lots of room for tiny little details that I know people are going to see whereas if it's a pump clip a tiny little detail that I've thought again like the hops or something mm. that I've thought ages about and I, I really like people might not see it on a pump clip at the back of the bar if you've got the can in your hand you'll go oh, I didn't I didn't realize there's a crazy little axolotl chasing mm. a shark or something and <laughs> you wouldn't see that normally so yeah. it's really fun working with cans yeah I think another Manchester brewery I saw um, of the three examples I wanted to mention was Pomona Island uh, who's just done their cans but they they're like they use really bright pastel shades but they're super minimalist and that it kind of reminds me of like marble but they're just doing it using a different like colorway but it's really interesting to see that can I don't know if you've seen Pomona Island's cans but very simple very catchy name but it's just it's it's actually quite immediate and I've not seen that in beer and it's kind of showed what there's a lot of versatility available in cans but the other one going back to bottles is Burning Sky because uh, they have a, their own artist, Simon Gain, who does these wonderful uh, scenes, whether it's one of the landscape or whether it's people enjoying beer. And, and there's this sort of a, almost camaraderie leaps from the labels. And I guess because they do a lot of 750ml bottles, that, they've got a lot more room as well. Um, so any, any, is there anything else that really stands out as great examples of beer branding? That, the Colonel. Yeah. yeah, the Colonel's quite an interesting one because that's, that's legacy. No one will ever be, everyone's, people can try to copy it, but no one will ever replicate that. Uh, I think what North are doing in terms of that kind of minimal recessive branding and isometric design thing, that they're absolutely killing it at the minute. Yeah. They're absolutely, like, it's, it's so simple, but uh, so kind of visually impactful. I'm a big fan of their branding. That's a great example. I was on a, a judging panel at Beer Marketing Awards, and uh, not all of the judges were from a beer background, which made being on the panel really interesting. And uh, North, for all the branding people who weren't from beer, they were like, what? This is like, wow. Uh, and they'd entered the year before, and they, they, they didn't quite make it, but they tweaked it. So not only were the cans looking amazing, but you instantly recognize them as north brewing so yeah that's that's interesting so i think this it's summary for that is we we what we're going to see in 10 years we don't really know uh, <laughs> but whether we, it's be interesting to see uh, what will be the next uh, legacy beers that where's the next yarl coming from or are, are those days over are we just in a in a sea of of specials um i'm going to open it up to you folks does anyone have any questions for our panel straight away over here So I've been listening to what you've been saying about uh, the labelling. So there's, there's obviously quite a big trend to go for fun, vibrant, quirky labels. And then you've got the flip side of that, which is more traditional. Um, and it's, I, I know that I'll go to a bottle shop and I'll try things that I haven't tried before. And depending on my mood, I'll either go for Beaver Town style colours and cartoonishness or I'll go for an Orkney brewery because I'm feeling 
like it's more serious. Do you think about just having different lines from your brewery labelled in a completely different style so you could actually attract that market? Because it's the same people probably, but they might be wanting something fun and they might be going to dinner with their parents. They're like, you know what, I want a really hoppy, awesome something or other, but I don't want to look like a teenager in front of you know, your girlfriend's parents. So have you thought about something like that? Because you could actually have the same beer and you could just have two different lines. You could have, you could put a posh name on it if you wanted to, but, you know, I think that might be something that could work. I don't know. Um, I'm going to go for this, right? Um, so the, the rebrand project we did was partly also fueled by doing the opposite of that. Uh, <laughs> we used to have what we called our classics and our craft ranges, and it got to the point where like neither range was really representative of, of who we are as a brewery. And then like if you're going to have if you're going to try and do that and have beers that appeal to different drinkers, the brewery still needs to come first. It can't be like the product first or the range first and then the brewery second because the brewery is the most important part of it. Where who's making that beer, where it's come from, what they're using to brew it, that has to come first. You want people to look at your pump clip, your bottle label, your can, and go that's from fine ales, not, oh, that's Yarl. And we found that part of our research. People knew Yarl but didn't know who brewed it, which is absolutely insane. Um, so, yeah, like, we, we've been there. On the same token, we do do the Origins thing, which is a different style, but that is very much because we didn't want people who love Yarl to go and drink that and expect it to be Yarl because those beers are very much not Yarl. So there, there was an in intentional gap there, uh, whereas our other beers, we kind of tried to consolidate them a bit to make them feel more kind of... You know, put the brewery first and make them feel part of the same range, basically. Next question. Yes. Thank you. Um, my question relates to how craft brewers might measure success. Um, craft beer, thankfully, I'm sure we all agree, are about niche products. Um, and that's why we love them. But marketing is a process where you take the product to market and make it a, a, relative to sales. Sales are measured on volume. Um, when volume hits, how do you avoid becoming another mass brewer? It's a good question. Andrew, do you want to take that one? <laughs> if you, if you, if you uh, have a really successful beer, how do you avoid uh, falling into the trap of, of just... It, you've got this legacy beer, but how do you just stop from churning that out? Uh, okay, I think what makes obviously craft beer so interesting is that there's just no end of styles and variation and, and fun to do. Um, and again, going back to some lines of Kaleidoscope, if, if we make that, if we make those beers in the style that's popular now, so like really juicy and stuff, we're sort of betraying what they are in a sense, I guess. And equally, we could just pump out sort of four and a half percent pails all day because they sell ridiculously quickly, but that would be quite tedious. So I think the love of the craft is what keeps that in check for us. You know, we, we want to sometimes make these stupid beers with silly ABVs and, and just nuts um, because that's fun. And yeah, I don't know, we, we would go work for massive breweries if we wanted to do that, I think. So yeah, it's, it's still, there's still a lot of, well, there is passion in it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this, um, I think. Does anyone want to add anything to that? I think if, like, Obviously, we're, we're operating on a slightly bigger scale, and, and we do pump out lots of payloads that sell well. Uh, <laughs> um, but for me, it's like, as long as the kind of fundamental kind of uh, core of the brewery's beliefs stays the same, then it's just not a problem. As long as you're not compromising on your beers, on your, in, on your recipes, on your production methods, on in, 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 um, engaging with and enriching your team, then 
doesn't matter the scale. You know, as long as you re retain those ideals that you set out with at the beginning, then it, you can brew as much as you want. And, and as long as the beer is still as good, obviously. So it's what Tina was saying about brewing peak, that you don't really have like a core beer and every time you brew it, it's a new evolution of that beer. It also stretches to the yarl as well. I imagine that the yarl that you brewed this week is a slightly different recipe to the yarl, I'm going to say in 2001, I don't know when it was first brewed. And it's kind of the importance of, what is the importance of the evolution to maintain the legacy, to meet the new demands of the market, not just from a branding perspective, but also the beer to support that and kind of like, and then how you evolve the beer to like, to keep it the same product, but also to keep it accessible to the market. I think it's, it's, it's more like, ha I think what Hannah was trying to say is, as your brand evolves, how do you keep up with the, the needs of your consumers? Would that be, yeah, that be right? So, Tina. Yeah, I think, um, so we do a lot of um, changing beers and progressions on the last beer, and they're all sort of a little bit different. So we're almost made for um, a change in market and a change in consumer. People expect our beers to be slightly different each time, and that's what they want. That's the audience that goes for our beers. That's, that's what they expect from us. I think it's maybe different if you have a core range. And again, that's probably quite interesting. How do you um, keep a core beer evolving to keep it current? Um, I think that would be very tricky. <laughs> um, yeah, I probably can't speak about that because we don't really do core. But I think keeping relevant uh, with the consumers, easy for us because we do lots of one-off stuff. So we could, we can make whatever we want really, and people don't expect everything to taste the same every time. So we're we're sort of made for that. But um, I don't know how you guys. Do yeah, it with it's. Your um, I don't know. Like uh, it's it's tricky. Like Yarl hasn't changed that much in ten years. I don't think. Obviously, we get it, it changes um, when we get new season hops in and stuff. It will obviously taste slightly different and things. But um, it it's it's a fairly it's a very simple beer and, and therefore it's quite timeless in its nature and, and uh, we have obviously if we see an opportunity to improve it we will absolutely kind of explore that opportunity but it, only if we're 100% confident that it is still Yarl at its core then, then we, you know it, with those changes we wouldn't implement that change like we played around with trying to do a gluten free version of Yarl um, and seeing how that, how that affects the recipe and stuff and we have, we're not confident at the moment that um, the, the adjunct that you add to make it gluten free would, wouldn't compromise the flavour of the beer so we're not doing it yet but it's, it's, it's that kind of thing when you see an opportunity to improve the recipe or, or make it more accessible like the gluten free thing then we'll explore it but at the end of the day it still has to be that beer that everyone knows and loves so we, we, we kind of Subtle incremental improvements, uh, nothing major, because it is a fairly simple kind of classic beer. Thanks, Hannah. That was a great question. And we've got another one down here. Um, do you think that the visual representation and the branding of a beer affects the taste of it? Like, for you guys that have rebranded the stuff that was in the previous branding, does that taste different to a consumer from uh, what it is now? And, Tina, you know, if somebody did a blind tasting versus seeing your can first, do you think it would taste different to them? You'd like to think that people would say it wouldn't and it tastes exactly the same, but I think there's been quite a lot of studies that show um, how you see something and how much you like that branding does reflect how you think it tastes. So if you th think it looks premium, then you suddenly think it tastes premium. And again, if you think it looks quite expensive, you think, oh, it must, must be fancy, this one, sort of thing. Because I think there was a study, I think it was on wine, there's probably loads of them, but they uh, put the exact same wine in two different bottles. One looked very premium and the other was very boring, looked very cheap and sort of Tesco bought or something. 
and pretty much everybody said that the wine from the fancy bottle tasted nicer, but it's the same, it's the same wine. So I think it does make a difference. It definitely does. I'm a little bit synesthetic in the colour of the, so which means my senses get confused. So sometimes I, I see colour when I taste stuff uh, or hear stuff, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, the, the colour of a can can influence what the beer tastes like. Another one, it says on Dupont um, have different branding for the US market than they do in the UK, and you, people say it's the same beer, but it, people say it tastes different out of each bottle, which is which is fascinating, really. We've got time for one more question. Yes, maybe maybe two. Um, I was just going to say, in terms of your design and sort of language and comms, do you feel you've ever had to make some tough judgment calls in terms of favouring one demographic over another, and in terms of appealing to your established audience or branching out and going a different way? I think, I think we've just gone with what we've wanted to do, and we don't actually make that much beer, and we've not really struggled to sell it, so it's not, unlike a lot of other breweries that have used marketing and market research and stuff, and have really sort of put a lot of time into researching what works and who is their demographic. Is it, is it a man, a woman, how old are they, all that, all that stuff. We haven't really, ours is sort of just grows organically with us and we've just sort of done what we want to do and that's worked so far. We might have to change and maybe do some more research and, and think, oh, actually, maybe it is a little bit too colourful and maybe it needs to be a bit more serious. But at the minute, what we do, people seem to enjoy us for what we are and if they don't like it that's fine there's so many other different breweries there if you want a maybe a more serious tone you can you can find that i think how about you ian or andrew have you ever uh, targeted a particular demographic at the risk of alienating another but maybe consciously or unconsciously um i think uh, where we're lucky is that we have this established market from from our from our age um so i think we, we weren't sort of changing our audience we were just expanding it so all the old boys that live in Hampshire are still buying summer lands and, and such on cask, but um, but perhaps they, they just see you know, they see the name. They're not looking at the branding. They're just going to keep doing that. Whereas perhaps you know outside of our area, those same people perhaps not. Um, but I think we're just lucky that it's just pushed it out rather than changing changing it. So uh, probably quite lucky. I think as well a lot of the branding I've seen um, currently with Craft Beer, um, it's really good in that it isn't sort of or to me it's not aimed or targeted to anyone, I wouldn't say. Maybe it is, but looking at a label, I sort of think, you know, that's not aimed at me specifically or an older chap. Or I see a lot of the, the branding now isn't aimed at any any particular gender or or anyone. It's it's quite inclusive now, I would say. Yeah, I think, I think that you, cool. can, you can look at, like, almost... Uh, uh, like a lot of the classic brands, like like they're having the resurgence, like something like Nike, which is like one of the most iconic brands, and the way they they are they are actively positioning to to, to target uh, other demographics, but by doing but their brand is is without definition, and it's it, you know. But I think uh, beer can probably learn a lot from some of the so the huge iconic brands uh, like like that. Um, we do have time for one more question. Did I see one over here? Yes. Um, I work in a company where really everyone in the company has like a completely different idea of what that company is and who it's for. So, I mean, Tina, you must have like a lot of a great degree of creative control over or your brand and how it's perceived. You said there was arguments in the office when you were kind of talking about your product lineup. You said you know the finals rebrand wouldn't be for you particularly. Like, how do you reconcile within the company itself how your brand is perceived and and what what your product lineup 
is and who it's for when that discussion comes up? Is that something you fight against all the time, or is that something that everybody seems to have kind of a kind of same direction on? Um, for me, like just kind of speaking from from the rebrand project, like it was from day one when when Jamie and I kind of sat and wrote the brief for our um, agency tenders, uh, it was we need to bring the team with us on this. Like we need to, every step of the way, we need to keep them on. Like all members of our team need to be on board and like understand why we're doing it, how we're doing it, who we're working with, and just like that was always going to be the case. Like it's just to kind of keep everyone who has a stake in this company as an employee or you know member of our team needed to feel ownership of what would be our new visual identity um, and that was that was really really important for us um, and we did so I, I think that's that made the transition easier I think um, and yeah there's still always going to be kind of an element of too many cooks where I throw a beer name out and everyone just goes that's ridiculous call it this or call it this or call it this and you, sometimes you just have to kind of like uh, yeah switch that off and just go no it's called Pink Rabbits now because I like that national song <laughs> so yeah uh, I think we're going to leave it there. So thanks again to, to Ian, Andrew, and Tina for coming onto this panel. Can you please give them a big round of applause? Thanks for tuning in, folks. If you're able to support the content we produce at Pellicle, please consider making a monthly donation via Patreon. You can sign up by visiting patreon.com forward slash Mag. Remember to subscribe, and if you can, please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice, as this will help more people find the show. Until next time, I've been your host, Matthew Curtis, and you've been listening to The Pellicle Podcast. <laughs>